we go through intense training. Um, we go through, um, you know, immersive training exercises, um, realistic training exercises. We're used to crawling around in confined spaces with live casualties and, you know, and working together as a team. Um, but what I would say that, you know, the entire team, 77 of us, uh, bonded, um, in a way that, you know, none of us will be able to describe to you what that bond feels like. Um, but I know that I've, I've come away with 76 brothers and sisters. Welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this episode, I'm speaking with Deb Swan on her recent uh, deployment to Turkey and indeed the Syrian border with the UK ISR, so the UK International Search and Rescue Team, um, and what's been both a recent tragedy and indeed a search and rescue effort um, for a sizable earthquake in Turkey. Deb Swan is a member of the WEM faculty, so World Extreme Medicine faculty. She is also an ACP, so Advanced Clinical Practitioner, uh, working uh, in Cambridge and indeed is a member of the UKSR. Welcome to the podcast, Deb. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for having me. Great to uh, great to speak with you. Debs, could I just maybe start with, this has been, speaking to you offline and just in other messages, this seems to have been probably one of the most visceral and challenging deployments that you've been involved in. Could you just maybe speak to your recent reflections on, on the week, couple, last couple of weeks? Yeah, so it's um, it's been the, um, it, it's an unprecedented uh, earthquake, um, the worst in over a hundred years, uh, particularly uh, in in that region, um, and that was fairly evident uh, when we landed in country. Um, it uh, we landed in uh, Gaziantep, um, a region in Turkey that was worst hit, and we were tasked to go to a city called Hatay, which is near the Syrian border, um, and we were one of the first. Um, international organizations to to reach the city um and um yeah as soon as we were on the ground uh, you could just see the, the the devastation of the city it was it was catastrophic so I, I suppose it's been compounded by the fact it's still the middle of winter so there is still freezing conditions and and or weather could you could you maybe speak to the conditions and, and maybe the wider conditions around sort of the um, access to water, access to um, indeed uh, toilets or, or lack of, and, and just maybe some of the wider aspects you, you also saw. So as uh, apart from seeing the, the, the devastation of the buildings, um, which I, I don't think there was one building that went unscathed, um, they'd either pancaked or they had just fallen over and people were sleeping on the streets, even though there were buildings that were still upright. And if they survived the earthquake and subsequent aftershocks, you potentially would be okay in those buildings. The people of Hatay were not sleeping in their buildings. They were sleeping on the streets and the temperatures were going down to minus six at night. Um, up to about 10 degrees in the sun during the day. But yeah, the, you know, people were, were, had no shelter and were gathering around makeshift fires, um, 
to keep warm um, blankets that they could salvage from from buildings. So that was that was evident straight away as as soon as as soon as we were there. The um, Turkish um, um, uh, uh, charity Afad um, were on site. They got there before us and they were putting tents up, but they didn't have enough. Um, so yeah, there were there were innumerable amounts of displaced people in that city. Debs, could you speak to sort of the feeling of the team? Because, you know, I guess the whole concept of UKSR is that it's self-sufficient. There's no burden placed on local resources because, as you said, sanitation is is maybe poor, access to water is poor at these times of acute emergency. But could you speak to just the feeling of the team on seeing the scale of devastation and indeed the scale of loss? Everyone was affected. Um, there were a lot of people uh, on their first deployment. So obviously they are going to be um, shocked uh, by what they're seeing. And there were some old guard there who had done numerous deployments and we were all affected by what we were seeing, what we were hearing. Um, we are self-sufficient. Like you said, we don't burden um, the you know the people that were affected by by this disaster. So we have uh, accommodation, food, water, a heat source. Uh, you know, away from away from this area, um, and you know we we really felt we really felt for these people. You know, they're they're coming up to us and and, and begging for help, um, saying that they can hear someone in a building. Um, they're frantically using diggers, hands shovels anything to to get to their loved ones and we had taskings you know we we are there to to search and to rescue live casualties so we are um uh, we are governed by um a central um organization um um called the united nations uh, coordination cell um so we are tasked by those people on good intel and good evidence um so we have taskings. We're walking through the city to get to these places. But if there is good evidence that there is a, a live casualty in a building, we'd stop. Um, the USAR techs assess it. They'll mark it up for other organizations to go to. Or if we run the dogs over the building, over the rubble, um, then, um, you know, that's, that's a good, a good sign for us to stay and, uh, and to start digging to find these people. So Debs, you mentioned the dogs actually, could you maybe speak to how useful they were uh, as an adjunct uh, to searching and indeed as sort of companionship really, but mm. also yeah, very much as an adjunct to, to, to your search profile? Yeah. So um, the, the dog, we, we deployed with, uh, with four dogs um, and they are um, live scent dogs. So they're not cadaver dogs um, and they are, absolutely fundamental to to the search and rescue effort and we we wouldn't have had the saves that we had without those dogs um they are absolutely brilliant um one of the dogs davy did about 50 searches in the first 24 hours um and they're absolutely keen for it um and you know they 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 love what they do um and yeah back at the base of operations they are little balls of morale um so they're, they're they're great to have around so Debs, could you maybe speak to just to give listeners an idea of sort of the 
the level and depth of devastation and indeed the sort of pathology you were seeing. Could you maybe speak to sort of the injuries and or cases that you, that were coming out and that you were seeing? Yeah, so you have to assume that people that have been um, buried in rubble or entombed um, in in a collapsed structure um, are, are going to have um, a, a fairly predictable <laughs> injury pattern, perhaps. Um, they will be um, dehydrated. Um, you know, they may well have uh, respiratory problems, um, so impaired ventilation from, from being crushed, or they've been inhaling dust and asbestos and noxious gases. Um, also, uh, you know, they, they've potentially sustained trauma in the event of a collapsed structure. Um, so, you know, anything, limbs, chest, pelvises, you know, any, anything. Um, they'll be potentially hypovolemic from blood loss. Um, and we also have to think about crush injury and crush syndrome. And as a medical team, we are prepared for, for all of those, of all of those eventualities. And we, we, we monitor, um, and treat whilst the, um, whilst they're being dug out by the, by the USAR technicians. Um, and somebody said to me earlier today that they didn't realize that the medical team actually went into the, into the, into the buildings with the USAR techs. Um, they thought we stood outside and waited for them to, to bring people out to us. And no, that's not the case. If, if somebody is, is, you know, it's a difficult, um, rescue, then we go in and, and we start treating. Um, for the man that, um, I was involved in, um, he'd been trapped for three days. He had gone into a building to try and rescue two people and the building collapsed further, trapping him. And he was trapped by his right leg. And unfortunately, the people that he was trying to save had, had died in those three days. And he was then trapped under their weight as well. Um, so he was, you know, he, someone came running to us when we were in another sector and they had a video of him alive. Um, and that, you know, we were like, okay, we'll go straight there. Um, and one of the USAR techs went in first, found him and then called me forward. Um, but what stopped me in my tracks was the fact that the, the two people that he'd been trying to, to rescue, a man and a woman were, were dead next to him and kind of on top of him, but they were holding hands in the rubble and that just for five seconds just stopped me. Um, and then John, the, the USAR tech I was working with was like, Deb, I need you here. And that, you know, snapped me out of that and I could then get on and, and help this guy. I mean, just even listening to you there, actually, it's extremely emotive and uh, moving to, 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 to hear that. Could you maybe sort of speak to how much clinical medicine you did practice versus maybe, I don't know, uh, hypothermia um, monitoring and or management? Uh, and was it was it more sort of fundamental basics or, or was it quite advanced? Initially, uh, absolute basics. Um, this guy that I was involved in was was awake um, and and talking, um, clearly trapped by his thigh. Um, so, 
you know, it, he looked dry. The um, USAR tech gave him a little bit of water because um, he was just begging for water and he vomited that water. So we got access straight away, gave him uh, an antiemetic, which then enabled him to, to keep the water down. Um, we rehydrated him with some sodium chloride. We had a small uh, monitor to do ECG monitoring. And if there's any changes on the ECG indicating that he was developing crush syndrome, then we have the, you know, the calcium chloride, the, 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 um, act rapid, um, the, the glucose, all the stuff you need just to, to push the potassium, um, back into, back into the cells. Um, I, we were concerned about his pelvis, um, and he was clearly in a lot of pain. So he had some fentanyl, which really helped him. He, he, yeah, he, he relaxed nicely with the fentanyl um and it was just you know the the continuous reassurance whilst he was being dug out and it was a about a three and a half four hour um extrication um and because we were um light on our feet we didn't have any heavy equipment at that point um we didn't have a stretcher to to maneuver him out of the out of the building and had to go down a couple of floors so we used a, a headboard um some rope um and um some very skilled usar techs to to get him out of that building could you speak to the sort of the supply and demand kind of curve really was there were you faced with an overwhelming amount of demands sort of clinical demands and or did you have to set up a triage sieve and or casualty clearing station or was it literally one casualty at once and plenty of resources to match the demand where the where we were tasked to and the taskings that we had there were not multiple casualties in one place it was one or two people um and as soon as we got them out of whichever structure we were getting them out of we handed them over to um turkish ambulance service um to be taken to the, luckily the the large hospital was out of the city by the football stadium so they were able to to function um from that perspective so we we hand handed them over so there, there wasn't um a need for us uh for like a casualty clearing area and to and to do triage for me so, because I, I can imagine these these extrications are prolonged and protracted, actually, and and I suppose just from a self care perspective, um, within the team, within the UK ISR team, did you did you have rotational shifts or indeed periods of intense searching and or aid and then coming out and was that was that defined before you sort of committed yourself to the buildings? Um, there was no definition from that, um, but in the first two days, all so we were split into four teams and given sectors within a sector. Um, the first two days, all four teams were out. So usually we'd work on a rotation um, to give people rest, but um, there was absolutely no way any of us were going to have a cup of tea and a rest before we, we hit the ground. So we we got into um gaziantep on tuesday evening drove through the night to get to hatai um set up our base of operations in the early hours of the morning and uh basically got into our ppe and got into the city um so you know it was like it, it was a it was a hit that we were willing to take and you know worry about it when you get home um type of thing we did have um a prolonged extrication um of two people 
that were um, uh, trapped in a building. Um, and this was day four going into day five. And it was a 20 hour operation to, to get them out. So we did rotate. So it was a, a, a 12 on 12, well, 12 on a few hours off, go back out again. Um, and that's, um, that uh, rescue um, it can be seen on social media. Um, it's, it seems to be everywhere, which is, uh, which is great. This is quite an emotive question, actually, and maybe quite a personal one around just whether you had to treat any paediatric patients and or, um, yeah, variety of paediatric patients, did uh, alive or dead, actually, did, did you sort of witness quite a sort of emotive scene and or treat a lot of paediatrics? I wasn't involved in any paediatric cases, but other team members were. Um, Amelia Weaver, one of our other um, uh, medical team members, uh, was involved with a, a rescue of a mother and her two-year-old daughter who were alive. Um, but there were... Um, we'd respond to good intel that people were still alive. Um, and um, by the time we got there, they had unfortunately died before we'd got there. So um, a few, you know, quite a few team members were involved in, you know, uh, children with parents um, that, you know, they were either missing or they were, you know, they, they hadn't survived. So just reflecting back on the deployment and just talking to a few team members, you said some of these were the was their first deployment. What was the what was the sort of mood from the team? Was it was it kind of shell shocked at the at the at the extent of devastation and the sort of clinical profile, or did you did you get a semblance that people were kind of taking it in the stride and the team was coming together? How 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 did it sort of play out? The um, I think there was an absolute determination that we were not going to stop until we are told to stop. Um, so whether that's, you know, we're, we're protecting ourselves from what we're seeing by keeping busy and helping people, um, there could be an element of that, but that's what we do. That's what we train for. We go through intense training. Um, we go through, um, you know, immersive training exercises, um, realistic training exercises. We're used to crawling around in confined spaces with live casualties and, you know, and working together as a team. Um, but what I would say that, you know, the entire team, 77 of us, uh, bonded um, in a way that, you know, none of us will be able to describe to you what that bond feels like. Um, but I know that I've, I've come away with 76 brothers and sisters. Listen, that's powerful. Actually, because like you said, it's, it's shared intense experiences, but, but that galvanize the team. You spoke to the sort of the physiological monitoring and indeed sort of this, the utility of small. Could, could you maybe speak to, to the kit? Because it, it is bespoke kit for, for disasters such as you've got, I think, small compact monitors. You've, you've got specific search and, and indeed, um, medical kit which is which is concise could you could you maybe speak to the profile of the kit for, for listeners that might not be aware mm. the monitoring we use is tempest pro um uh, which is modular um and small enough to get into tiny spaces robust enough for me and firefighters to drop <laughs> um and survive um so yeah that that's that's what we use um we have uh, an emergency 
medical bag which has what you would expect on a you know enhanced critical care team bag in the uk um which it's, it's a pain to carry around with your own kit um so you know what you you've got about sort of 10 to 12 kilograms of your own kit plus a 17 18 kilogram bag on top of that as well um but it's it's there to you know to provide a, a kind of semi-advanced care primarily for the for the USAR techs if they have an accident um you know s sustain a trauma or become unwell um but we all know that it's it's you know it's for, for the for the people that we're finding alive um in in the in the buildings what i did um because i didn't want to take the entire kit into uh, the building um i just um put it into um bags of the things that i thought i would need um so uh, tourniquets some airway stuff um treatment for um uh, crush syndrome um analgesia antiemetic fluids um and then if i needed anything else from that just call through call out and then just get it you know, ferried into me. Um, and that's just from experience of, of exercises in the past when I've either not taken enough or taken too much. So yeah, just kind of splitting it down to predicting what I'll need. Um, and then, yeah, asking, um, one of the USAR techs in the left hand pocket down at the bottom or whatever there, there should be <laughs> a pelvic binder. Can you please send it up? So yeah, um, that, that's how I worked. Um, so yeah. Debs, could you speak to just uh, how you communicated? Because Turkish is not entirely maybe dissimilar to the Arabic language. There's, there's, there's a lot of crossover, a lot of similarity. But I can imagine lots of the survivors and or local community may or may not speak English, actually, and just and maybe just be speaking Turkish. But there's a lot of inferred reassurance just from nonverbal yeah 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 the, yeah so there there was a uh, you know a lot of nonverbal communication going on with just people in the street who are pulling you to you know to 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 go into a a building to to rescue people um and you know if we put the search dogs over a building and they they don't get a hit it's breaking that news to 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 people and sympathizing with them and you know that nothing beats eye contact um and just you know just just being sympathetic and few words and if you know i felt comfortable then i would put my hand on on someone's shoulder um you know the the older turkish women um i would hold their hands because i could because i you know i'm a woman i can i can hold their hands um and and that is enough you know you have it's 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 really weird i felt you know we we had an understanding between us just through empathy really and simple touch and eye contact we were really lucky we had volunteer interpreters so ordinary everyday folk from all over turkey had come to hatay to offer their assistance for absolutely free um, and they were invaluable to us and um again without them we we wouldn't have been able to have done our job quite so easily um we had one guy called oj who um when we had our prolonged 20 hour extrication of the of the two people that were still alive he was crawling into the spaces because we could hear them and he untrained you know a, a guy from istanbul um 
crawling into the confined space that the USAR techs had, had made to get through to these people and was talking to them and relaying information to, to me about their, about their medical condition, um, and to the USAR techs about, you know, what they're saying, what they're trapped under. Um, and yeah, he was just, you know, an unsung hero along with all of the interpreters who, who, who joined us. So Debs, as we sort of come into land on the conversation, just a couple more questions, really. One is around sort of what you're going to take from that deployment, maybe within your nursing career or indeed your expedition career. Are there any sort of seminal points and or things you already knew, but have been emphasised by the deployment? Um, I think my main takeaway from this deployment is the is the generosity of the the people of of Hatai. They had nothing, and they were offering us tea and food, and they were handing out rubble gloves, uh, you know, to, to to us, which we didn't need. But you know, they were it, it was unbelievable. They had nothing, and yet they were still being hospitable and generous and kind. And you know that 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 in its <clears throat> excuse me that in itself would you know make us a little bit like oh suddenly we've got an acute attack of hay fever here we seem to <laughs> our eyes are watering um and you know people were sharing their stories with us um you know they were they were telling us about how their family had died in a, you know a few buildings up the street but thank you for being here and thank you for trying and and keep doing what you're doing you know it was just it was humbling it was it was you know it was, it was really really humbling and i had two two um two moments of thinking that it, i might die at this at this point um was when i was in um a collapsed structure and there was a 3.2 um aftershock um and we had to move quickly out of that building um and that I, I haven't felt fear like that before. That was, that was incredible fear. Um, and there was another incident where it was uh, probably just coming up to midnight. There's no electricity in the city. And suddenly we just heard a roar of people running towards us and past us, including the police and the military. Um, people are screaming at us to move. Um, and you could, the, the fear and the panic was palpable. And someone said that a dam had burst and that there was water coming down because we were by the river. Um, so we just all ran. We left every, dropped everything and, and ran. Um, and on those two occasions, I just thought, oh, is, is this it? And I wonder if it's going to hurt. And that was it. It was, it was it, surreal experiences. Um, so they'll stick with me as well. But I, I think that the, you know, the, the prevailing feeling that I have, uh, from, being in Turkey, uh, very near to the Syrian border, uh, was was the was the generosity and, and the hospitality of uh, you know a, a group of people who had lost everything. Finally, Debs, as we do come into land, could you just maybe speak to the debrief and the wash up that you guys had, sort of as a UK ISAR team, and and maybe yeah, what was what was discussed, what was learnt, and indeed what was taken away. So uh, discussed, um, we didn't discuss much. Um, I think we, the, typical gallows humour, there was a lot of laughter about things, particularly the running away from a, a burst dam that actually didn't exist. 
um, um, but because we'd bonded, um, everyone has said, you know, we, we, we need to keep in contact. We're brothers and sisters now. If anyone's struggling, if anyone's got any problems, then you just reach out. Um, each of the fire and rescue services have systems in place for their, for their employees. Um, but as the medical team, because we all work for the NHS, uh, we have a structural engineer and we have a vet. You know, none of us are attached to a, a fire and rescue service, but we are adopted by our local USAR stations. So we can tap in, we can tap into that. Um, they did offer trim, um, for, people kind of on deployment. There were a few trim practitioners who were offering um, time with people. Um, but it was just, it was camaraderie and, you know, eating together um, in the mess tent um, and talking through the day. Um, and we had um, a day and a half waiting for a flight to come and get us. So that was almost like a decompression um, time as well, um, you know, just catching up and yeah. Uh, but the dogs uh, most definitely <laughs> were a tonic. Des, listen, thank you for your reflections. It's it's really good to hear just your you know anecdotal experience and account, and just yeah, just re your reflections from what sounds like an extremely intense experience. So thank you. Thanks, Owen. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.